the British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation. I'm your host, Sean Hendricks. This is episode 43, and for this episode, I had two conversations with two very interesting individuals. Uh, the first conversation is with Chantelle Taylor. Uh, Chantelle is a veteran of the British Army. She was a combat medic with uh, deployments to Afghanistan, uh, Africa, and then she went on to work as a contractor and de- and deployed to several other uh, conflict zones as well. And Chantal is also the author of a book called Battle Worn. And you can you can get that on Amazon.com. Just search for Battle Worn. And it, that book basically talks about one of her deployments uh, into Afghanistan where she did see combat and she was on the front lines. And um, in fact... Uh, she is renowned for being the first British female soldier in history to engage and kill an enemy combatant at close quarters. Uh, she was the lead medic supporting an infantry fighting company during prolonged combat operations in the Helmand province region of Afghanistan. So that was a, a very interesting conversation. I'm sure you guys will enjoy it. And my second conversation w- was with Aaron Epstein. And Aaron is the president of an organization known as the Global Surgical Medical Support Group. And they are a very interesting organization because what they're doing is they're providing medical care and training to the Kurdish uh, people who are fighting against ISIS in Iraq. So not only are they just, you know, setting up clinics and helping them deal with their patients, they are also teaching them. Uh, how to do this, do these things on their own, which is a uh, incredibly selfless. And you know there aren't many organizations out there doing what they do. Uh, you know you have much larger and more famous organizations that you know are su- 
supposed to be out there giving aid and doing things like that. But really, you know, the reality is on the front lines, what they do is they, they show up and drop some supplies for a week or so, you know, put up their banners and flags and take a few pictures and leave. But this group st- is actually staying there and working with the uh, Kurds who are fighting against ISIS. And they have surgeons on their team. They have uh, combat medics from the U.S. military, from the British military, from the French military. So uh, they're a very interesting group, and they provide a great service um, in their effort to fight against an evil like ISIS. So uh, now I will get into my conversation with Chantel Taylor. Hey, what's going on, guys? Uh, For this episode, I'm on with uh, Chantel Taylor, and Chantel was a former combat medic with the British Army, and she is also the author of the book called Battle Worn, the Memoir of a Combat Medic in Afghanistan. Chantel, how's it going? Hi, nice nice to speak to you, John. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, Thank you for taking out the time and uh, coming on. Hey, you're welcome. All right, so so we'll talk about your book, but before we get into that, um, can we talk a little bit about, you know, what what inspired you to join the army? And then, you know, obviously here in the U.S., it's a kind of a hot topic, and you know, it's been it's being debated back and forth on whether, you know, women should be allowed into combat units and and on the front lines and that sort of thing. So I know as a woman, I'm sure there's a an added level of I don't I don't want to say difficulty or or maybe pressure is the right word I'm not sure but um, you know for you to to decide to do that I know isn't it's out of the normal um, for most women you know so so what kind, what inspired you to to join the army and and take the career path that you've taken? Well, it, it was quite simple really. I'd. Um... You know, I grew up in an area that was, I don't know what you call them in America, but it, um, it was a council estate. So it was kind of an area where kids grew up and, you know, you're out sort of playing um, either football or different things. You sort of um, hung around in little gangs. I don't mean the sort of gangs that you see in the States, the armed gangs, but it was, it was just a, like rough and tumble sort of childhood. And I was brought up with three brothers um, my grandfather was a, a Royal Marine and he served in Korea. So we had that kind of affiliation to the military. And then my brother joined the infantry. So I'd, I'd come to a point in my life where I thought I, I kind of wanted to get out. And it's in some ways, the, the military, I'd say it was, it was one of those things that was going to sort of save me from taking a path that maybe wouldn't have ended so well, which sounds really weird considering the places that I ended up. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's... And it was that simple. And then when I said, I remember saying to people, yeah, I'm going to join the army. And then once I'd said it, it was almost like, shit, I've got to do it now. I couldn't not do it. And then I'd, and this is how funny, you know, people say, oh, you, you must have had a real sort of love for medicine. And I said, no, I said, I looked down the list and it was the only, the only role that had the word combat in it. So I thought, well, that sounds cool. And that's, that's how silly I probably was when I was joining up. Very naive, really. And how, and then, how old were you when you joined up? I was 22, so I'd, I'd, I worked, you know, I had a job and things like that, but I'd, I'd seen life in the 90s in the UK wasn't awesome. You know, there was a lot of, we were sort of getting over economy issues and things like that. So there's a lot of, um, I think you've probably seen it um, romanticised in movies where you have football hooligans and things like that, you know, pubs. So it was quite, 
know, I was brought up in quite an area that was known to be you know, quite violent at times, and and it was kind of just escaping from that, and yeah, so probably going from somewhere relatively violent to somewhere that could be potentially far more violent. Right, yeah. you're kind of in a controlled, more controlled yeah. way. Yeah, know? definitely. And it, and it gave me direction. You know, when I joined up, I remembered my my parents were like, you know, I don't think anyone really thought because I I wasn't known to be the most disciplined of children. So I just, yeah, I if, if I could have found any excuse not to finish training, I probably would have taken it. But it's just your own pride, isn't it? I think that I I always had that something about me that quite strong, strong-willed. So... And that's that's what set me on that path. Okay, and you so when you signed up, you went straight into into learning combat medicine. No, I went. We do an initial phase of training, which is almost like just turning you from being a civilian to a soldier, and it's it's all the the things that you do your basic basic weapons, um, how to iron your kit, you know your, your initial phases of your um, exercises, things like that. And we we were a mixed platoon, so it was uh, men and women were in together and I remember that we were on the bottom floor and then you had the sort of baby paratroopers they were on the top floor so we'd where I did my basic training it was you had medics but you also had infantry and although we weren't mixed with the infantry at that point we still enjoyed their PTIs so we always had some hideous grunt I mean if you call them grunts or grabs but we had some hideous grunt PTI taking pleasure in beasting the medics so yeah yeah, from an from an early start in the military, I, I always saw that it wasn't going to be the easiest path I'd ever take. But actually, at least I was doing something constructive. Okay, right. And so, are there a lot of women who are in that the British Army's like combat medicine field? Um, there are there are a few more now, but back then there weren't there weren't that many because it only really just um, opened up. And I didn't know that when I joined up. I just like I said, I just saw the words. Um, and then when I'd got to my first unit, there weren't many women. There, there were enough, but um, when you sort of compare them to, to the amount of men, they were they were limited. And that was just, I think that's just the way it was. And you either kind of survived that or you became a victim of it. And, it, I, and the, these places were very easy. I think the military especially, you can get sucked in if you kind of want to just achieve um, through the kind of where other people accept you, you know, unless you kind of prove yourself. I, I, I was very much of the mindset of, you know, I wanted to go and, and I wanted to be a good combat medic. That's, that's what I chose. So I, I wanted to be good at my job. How long were you in the, the Army total? I did just shy of 12 years. Okay, so you were, you were in for the beginning of what, you know, has been called this, this global war on terror. Yeah, and and I'd I'd been to a few places before that that obviously happened. I went I went to Kosovo Kosovo initially as a baby medic, and then Sierra Leone, which was a, a very interesting tour. But those sorts of things, I'm so, I so sort of now look back and appreciate what I did there because I was then you know I was going into I went into Iraq in two thousand and three, and then Afghanistan twice with the British military. So I. I was grateful of those initial tours that weren't quite as kinetic because then when it did get kinetic, I was, I kind of peaked at my final tour and I was really, you know, I was lucky to have, to have peaked. And obviously so were the guys that I was supporting. You not only have you served for 12 years in the British army, 
when you got out, you also worked as a defense contractor. Yeah, I, 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 when I left um, the British military, I then went back to Afghanistan for two years with initially the de um, Department of State and then Department of Defense. And it was just it was to train the Afghan border police medics. So it was it was weird, actually, because and that's where I actually wrote the book. That's where I wrote my book, because I'd every contractor will know that you do get some time on your hands. And yeah, it was quite um, healing for me. I don't mean I, I wasn't healing from anything in particular, but I was. I needed to get something out. Right, like it's it's almost like a kind of a, a catharsis type of process. Yeah, yeah, and and it was more about you know the guys that I'd serve with, because although it's, although I wrote the book, their story, you know, their story needed to be told because they were conventional infantry and they were you know they were they were a scottish battalion and they had an awful lot of history and then they fought really hard in, the, in that set of scenario that scenario that I, I speak about and i was i was honored to tell their story yeah and I, i've read a few british military books myself um and i know the the scottish have a very kind of proud warrior history yeah they're nuts they're crazy aren't they <laughs> <laughs> yeah so Okay, so your book was about one tour that you had in Afghanistan, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I touch, where, where I go back, I go back onto the other tours, you know, that, that kind of relate to that tour and the things I'd learned. Because it, it wasn't just, I'd done tours, but by the time that I'd got to Afghanistan, I was a sergeant and I was in charge of a, a small med team. But I'd also done a lot more in the military. So I'd I'd been at a depot for, say, two and a half years in I'd, I'd been qualified as a weapon instructor. I'd, I'd qualified in all these different infantry-style tactics um, courses that, to be to be honest, I had no business being on as a woman. But I just, I remember I was at, um, when I first got posted to 16 Air Assault Brigade. And sometimes if you're not, um, you know, I, I wanted to sort of better myself as a soldier, not just a medic. And I went away and, and applied for these courses. And they didn't, on some of them, they didn't realize I was a girl, which is odd because my name's Chantel. I don't know many guys that have that name. Um, so, and then I'd turn up and it'd be like, oh, this, this, she's a chick. And I'd, so I'd just do it anyway. And people might think that's crazy, but that, that kind of crazy saved my life and saved the lives of guys around me. So, because I was able to react, not just as a medic, but as a soldier in certain times where it's fine being a combat medic, but the, the word combat goes before medic. And I was so aware of that and, and that's the the kind of attitude I wanted to instill in the junior medics I wanted them to know that they were soldiers first and you, you're no use to anyone if if you become a liability or you're a burden on the platoon or company that you look after right and 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 over here in the U.S. Um, I, I don't remember the exact year that it started but eventually you know, somebody came up with the idea of having a highly trained uh, female have them inserted with a special operations unit, whether it be Rangers or Special Forces, and and they were part of what what they called the uh, FET program, which was the Female Engagement Teams program. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. We had, we had the same um, the same kind of thing in Afghanistan. Oh, a friend of mine was on it. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I know the Australians had a program as well, and uh, from from talking to different people, you know, ab ab about the whole issue of, of women being allowed into infantry units, you know, obviously people have different opinions, and um, yeah, sure. 
you know, I've spoken to different guys who deployed with women with with these uh, FET women who are attached to their units, and I've gotten mixed uh, answers from you know what, what they if they think they should be there or not, and yeah, and and I guess it just depends on on the individual, you know, because I've heard that they've been in situations where they were in gunfights and the women were very effective, um, and then I've also heard you know, negative things. So it, I guess yeah, it depends sure. who you talk to, you know? Yeah, and I think that's always going to be the case when it's new. And um, I, I'm i just a, I'm a believer in this, is that I used to never really ask permission for what I wanted to do because I thought, well, it's easier for me to persuade someone that I should be there if I prove myself. You know, that's, that's I think that's by and large, that's what you should do generally. I mean, guys right. have to prove themselves. So... And when you earn something, it, it tastes sweeter, doesn't it? So I, I look at it this way. I think the, there will be some exceptional females out there. And, and we're kind of doing not, we're not doing bad for getting on the front line as, as we stand. You know, it's not like it's just sort of sat back somewhere counting boxes. I think we've, we've, there's plenty of women that have proved themselves in combat. But what, what I don't like is that if they try and turn it around to tick a box now, if, if there's a requirement for, for me as a female, as a female medic, as a female soldier to be somewhere because it makes us more combat effective, I'm happy with that. And I'm completely comfortable to ensure that I'm trained to that standard to go into that role. But what I don't like is that if they just say, right, put, put women there because we want to tick that box politically, and, right. but for no purpose. It serves no purpose on the battlefield. Right. You know, I, there must be a purpose because the battlefield is unlike any job or employment sector that we have in the entire entire universe you know so it has to be you can't just tick boxes because people die and that that's a fact and it's a harsh fact and you know it's, it's whether you have the problem in your governments is the same as that we have in ours is that it's very easy to make those decisions when you sat behind a desk just moving paper from from one part of the desk to the next but when you're actually in the in the shit and things are going wrong that's that's usually the people that suffer the the decisions made at that level, and I've I've been on the end of that that decision making process, and it's not it's not a comfortable position to be in. Right, absolutely, and and I think that's one of the concerns that people who are against, um, and and then you you so you have like different types of individuals who are opposed to you know women being allowed to integrate into infantry units or yeah. special operations units, and like. One, like, it's kind of like that old school, you know, combat isn't for women. And no matter what you say, they're not. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's kind of sweet, isn't it? And it's funny because my, my grandfather, he was old school. And he was he was a Marine. He was a, a, a British Marine, but he was attached to you guys for Korea. And he was, you know, they don't come any more old school than that. And I remember receiving my last letter off him before he died. And, and he just... Because he kind of looked at me when he he's, he's like, "Wow, she, you look so tall." And I'm not tall. I'm five foot eight. I'm not tall, but I stood up. I obviously stood, I suppose, like a soldier stands. And he uh, he he just gave me that sort of advice of never turn your back on the enemy. And it was it was weird because he he would never have thought of a woman being on the front line. But it's different when his granddaughter's standing in front of him. And I often think of I can think of worse roles to have your daughters do in the in in the world. You know, you know. Sometimes I think we're in danger of, like, it's okay if if, if your daughter goes off and and does this because it's seen as, as sort of accepted in society. But I don't think you should ever 
be ashamed or be reluctant to have your daughter or granddaughter serve serve their country. I don't think that should be a career choice that you should, that you should try and stop. But like like you say, everyone has their own opinion. So and that, good good for them, you know. Right, right, and and you know I I agree. I feel like if anybody wants to serve, um, yeah, it should be honored, you know. Yeah. So long as they can do what they what they they sign up for, you know. So like I I had a, a funny um a funny moment in an interview, and I was like, you know, every, most people think, oh, it'd be cool to drive a tank, but if if you if you're rubbish at driving the tank, you're not driving the tank. You know, that's not going to be your your job. You can't just say, oh, I'd quite like to be in the mortar team, but I'm crap right. at firing mortars because it just doesn't work, does it? You know, you, it's kind of a case of. Well, then I suppose when it comes to the the levels, when you get to the special forces levels, they every man counts, every person counts. You know, you have to have. They don't just they don't just reinforce themselves as quickly as say conventional troops could do that. You know that, that every single person counts. So on one of those teams, and and you've seen how fit and strong some girls get, especially with the introduction of CrossFit, for instance, that improves a lot of strength. That. If you can do what you need to do, and there's a specific role that you need to carry out with that group, then that's fine. That's 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 um, that's actually us fighting clever, you know, and using every asset that we have to to achieve a task, and which is at the, at the end of the day is to to defeat the enemy. And if if we need to use people in specific roles, then that that's what we should do. You fight clever, you know. Right, and you know, I've I've read a few British military books and. Um... One of the books that I read, I forget the name, but it was about the special boat service. And, ah, yeah, okay. And the guy who wrote the book, uh, he used a pen name. He didn't use his actual name. He yeah. he was, I think, he was in in like the mid seventies or something like that. So you know, to sometime in the eighties. Yeah. And they were the British government was sending, you know, special boat service guys, special air service guys up into Northern Ireland as part of their yeah. that special reconnaissance detachment. And they had women who were there. Yeah. Well, we've had women, um, especially in that role, because there's nothing less. I, if you look at it this way, what if, even in, like in your country, if you, your guys that are you're super fit, like the sort of tip of the spear guys, don't look, are not going to look ordinary on their own. You know, if you yeah, then if you put someone with, uh, say if I was out with another guy, we're both military. We we kind of could look like a normal couple, right? Or you could just look like you should be there, and and that's the whole point. Northern Ireland taught us an awful lot, and we um we have a we use we use women very well here, you know. And we've had women in, in all sorts of roles, especially in the clandestine world, and um and rightly so because it's it's using everything that you have. And I'm pretty sure in your intelligence services they would do the same and. I think what's happening in the world is our military have never been closer to our intelligence services. You know, we, everyone is now, it kind of crosses over because front lines are no longer really definitive. You know, we, we have these areas that we're in, obviously Syria, um, for example, um, the, the Ukraine, but a lot of, a lot of the warfare, warfare that happens, it could be happening over the internet. You know, so things, things are moving a lot, a lot, more sophisticated or you know there's a bit more sophisticated now isn't it right right absolutely and um and for that type of war warfare yeah you know, it 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 requires 
people to to know what's happening you know and um, yeah and to think out you know to think not always think about the um, brute strength or you know whose whose feelings are we hurting this week you know sometimes you just need to get get shit done and and however we do that if it if it works it works right absolutely and 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 like you said you know i've spoken to guys who who served for a very long time in yeah. the um the special operations realm over here in the states and they said yeah we women have been working with us for for years it's just now yeah. that it's coming out um yeah, more sure. to light you know and uh, do you know like, do you know like we've spoken about before is that they basically i think it's always it's always happened and again they and all the only sort of box that we're ticking now is the conventional warfare box. So for, for the longest time, we've, I mean, the Russians had snipers and they were obviously very effective, but that was for them, you know, but for the longest time, we've had women doing other, other types of things during wartime. But what's happening now is because it's those big boxes being ticked on the conventional troops that brings it all out to light. So it's not, so it's making it like it's new news, but it's kind of old news. Right. Right. Because I mean, how I don't get when they say um, like they're opening up the the doors to the infantry potentially and things like that. But again, unless you've unless unless they've seen there's a there's a space for that and there's a requirement on the battlefield for that specific person. And I can talk, I can say things like, yeah, you do need searches. You do potentially need a a female on a when someone's clearing rooms just in case there's uncovered women in in the sort of places that we fight now. And that's fine, you know, if, if that's what you require. But if it's just a case of, you know, putting boots on the ground and we're just ticking that conventional warfare box, I think it's almost like it's uh, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, and and that is some of the um, so like it's I, sad. I said earlier, it's very sad. well, yeah, absolutely. And and like I said, there was kind of what I've seen was like two kinds of people who are opposed to in the states opposed to women being in yeah. these infantry units, and one was kind of that old school, you know, nothing's going to change his mind. And then the other was the person who's concerned about that, what you're talking about, which is, um, are we just forcing it for political reasons or is it necessary, you know? And, and, and so there were two women who made it through ranger school to officers and, um, you know, there was a big controversy about that. Um, military style websites were reporting that, um, you know, they spoke to some of the instructors at Ranger School, and they told them that they were, um, you know, they were given breaks and and special chances yeah. and stuff. And but then, I've spoken to people who I highly respect and who are highly respected in within the the, the community. Yeah. And they told me they've have guys that they served with in combat who told them that that's all bullshit. You know, so it's like yeah. a lot of he say he say uh, kind of thing going. Yeah. On. So, and you're always going to get that. It's kind of. Um... I look at it this way. I think, well, if, if someone on that training staff was giving someone breaks, then I question their integrity. You know, if you don't have the, the minerals to stand up and say, this is the standard and that's what these women are passing at, which I believe they passed at. But if, if you don't have the minerals to say that and they don't pass at that level, then then I'd say look at yourself. You know, you, right. you're the one that's letting the system down, not those two women. Right, absolutely. You know, and and I've you know it's it's interesting because and and the the thing is those, those girls as strong and fit as they are they they were passing they weren't passing to be army rangers they were going to, going to be attached to to the rangers you know it wasn't the actual infantry and people were getting all sort of crazy about it right I think right. well Cause that's one thing people some people don't make the distinguishing no they don't do they and there is a distinction and that's 
And that's fine because they'll, they'll actually potentially add value to those infantry battalions. So absolutely, because yeah. Ranger School is really a, a leadership course. And, yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. And and they and they teach you know small unit tactics as well. Yeah. And you know what it, it I think it better qualifies the the officer or or leader who well, yeah, whoever it is without doubt yeah. Right? And 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 people think like you see people writing like online like oh you know they they shouldn't let women into the seventy fifth Ranger Regiment but. Yeah, and you're like, wow, and I and I'm British, and I know, yeah, right. I know the difference. Right. And it's, I, yeah, I sometimes get crazy when I see people and they comment and they don't, they you know, know what they're talking about. And it's, but then I suppose that's Jesus. That's what social media has done, hasn't it? They've yeah. given people a voice that potentially shouldn't have a voice. I don't know. Right, like it's is that wrong? No, no, it's like a double-edged sword because it's like, yeah, in one way it's great because you give people the ability to connect in ways that they could never connect at any point yeah. in history. But at the same time, there are stupid people out there. Yeah. And and I don't mean to sound ignorant or anything, but... Uh, no, there are. You know, and, and you give them a voice as well. And then, yeah. you know, a, a lot of stuff gets filtered. A lot of stuff doesn't get filtered. And, no, it's you know, that it's filter. We all, we all need a filter every now and again. Right. <laughs> and then even I've noticed, uh, this is completely off-piste, but I've noticed friends that you know who I held in high high regard, and I'll start seeing some interesting things that they come out with and think, "Wow, I didn't know that about you." Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's like because it's it's a conversation you probably wouldn't have had, and then all of a sudden they've got it's interesting. <laughs> right, and 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 that happens a lot, like on social media. Um, yeah, and even if you, I mean, it's sort of affecting our the. Um, what you call our famous people you know they sort of you see that people make these strange remarks and then oh and then they deleted it from their twitter or instagram it's quite funny right right but now it's already out there yeah, isn't it it's days, like, well yeah, you like, said it now right. yeah like you could delete it in five seconds there's somebody who's screenshot someone will still have taken yeah exactly it's funny <laughs> yeah but um yeah it's, it's interesting and this uh, do you know what i'm pretty sure the next 100 in 100 years from now when we're all gone they'll still be debating females on the front line oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah it's funny I, I think it's funny because you know it's, it's just it's one of those things and, and you have to you kind of have to have a thick skin to be in the military and then a thick skin to succeed and you know that's okay right right um <laughs> okay so can we talk a little bit about um your your tour in afghanistan the one that you wrote about in your book yeah sure well, so it was a it was my final tour with the military. Um, the the first tour of Afghanistan. It was in two thousand and six, and we were in. It was when we first did the push into Helmand Province. I was supporting um, three para bat battle group, and do you know it was funny. I actually worked in the hospital in Bastion in that tour, and most people say, "Oh, yeah, that's and it is. It's obviously like a rear echelon, but it was probably the most harrowing time, and I came away from that probably more affected. Than I did from the tour where I was out on the ground, you know, in the dirt, because it was just, you know, all you were seeing, you were seeing all this kind of everything from what was happening on the ground, all the crap comes to the hospital, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but you've just seen all the heartache, all the injuries, all right. you know, guys losing friends, and and it was just that was quite hard emotionally, and at the time I was engaged. Um, that I was engaged to a paratrooper who would we were brought up in the same area, and uh, he was in a, obviously a different AO, 
and and that was quite tough because I was I was trying to obviously be extremely professional at my job, but always um, concerned about someone um, who was out in the shit, you know, and singing in places like that. It wasn't it wasn't a good. T- it was an interesting tour, but it, it wasn't a good tour, and completely non kinetic for me. So, you know, no in no way near any sort of danger or anything like that. But anyway, so that led on to when we returned from that tour, I then went and did a few more infantry tactical courses. And, and when I went back for the second time, I was a, the med sergeant in charge of um, Lashkagareo. So I had a little team of medics. We had the resident um, infantry company, infantry fighting company. And so it was, it was interesting. It was a it started off relatively slow, that tour. Um, we had a few mass casualty incidents where we took um, local nationals in and, you know, treated them in our little um, main operating base there. And then the brigade as a whole uh, had a, like a mission to move massive bits of kit around um, the AO. So we we were sort of dicked with a couple of patrols down to the Marja Way and Nower, you know, areas that... People had been in them, but it was mainly SF um, teams had been in for look-sees, and then we were sent on a look-see to Marja. And I'm sure that if, you know, if there are guys out there that were listening, that Marja was a real sort of hotbed. It was a really bad, like it was a the place that the Taliban kind of grouped, and yeah. there was a heavy, you know, heavy sort of growing of opium down there. So they were protecting Marja at all costs, and also it was. Um, part of the pathway for you had Garmacia to the south and people would sort of come around and filter through Marja and places like that and, and head to Sangin. So it was just it was I suppose it was a path that the Taliban used and it and it was it was a bad place. So we go in there this um on this patrol and we're sort of on the outskirts to start with. We take a little bit of you know basic some mortar fire and things like that, see a few a few dodgy things going on, but we're relatively safe because we're out in the desert league sort of thing. And then we're instructed to go into Marja, but half of the, the fighting company returned to our main operating base. So we went in quite light. And, we, you know, we got heavily ambushed when we were in Marja. And the first time that I'd ever had to fire in anger. And it, it was strange because, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't something that I thought about. But I was in, we were in diff- different vehicles. We, I don't know if you know much about the British military, but we had those open top vehicles that the a lot of the americans used to laugh about actually well like, like the, the land rovers i think yeah the, so they're like wimmicks so they have you can have heavy machine guns mounted but they're kind of open yeah, but yeah. the good thing about them being open is if you do hit an id you've got more chance of being blown out of it as opposed to the heavy armor inside you know that's that's just from a medical perspective but anyway so we're still in these open top land rovers so um we're sort of edging our way along this canal and it, you know when you just Everyone on that patrol, every, you kind of knew something was coming because just of the way that you, you watch atmospherics in and around places like that and local villages start running. It's lunchtime. It's super hot. You know, everyone's sort of hanging out because it's just hideous. Um, and I was in, in my vehicle. I had the OC in the front cab along with his driver and his, his radio guy was my kind of, I suppose you call them um, battle partner or, you know, my sort of other half, if you like. And yeah, and it was a, it was bad. It was a bad ambush, and we we took a, um, a casualty to the rear, and kind of 
made good our, our escape, if you like, but it was it taught us a bit of a, a lesson. You know, they'd completely cut us off. And it was I'd never been so grateful to see the Apache gunships. And that was like the start of the that's what where the book kind of starts because it was um after that we then went to a place called Nadi Ali and we were stuck there for seven weeks. And in in that sort of time we treated my little med team, um, and we had no doctor, so we treated 66 casualties and, and four were killed. So it was a really, you know, quite that was a kinetic trip. But you know what? It was probably, it went as quick as, a, you know, the flash of an eye because it was just kind of, it's hard to explain, but it's that kind of rush. It was, it was fun, and I'd, I'd hate saying that, but it was like, this is awesome, you know, because we're just running around and everything was kind of working. You know, people were doing what they needed to do and it was just sort of clicking in. And But then, you know, I say that by the end of the seven weeks, I was like, right, I need to, I need to get home. <laughs> because it was getting too, you know, I got to a point where I was becoming complacent. And I don't mean this as in I was becoming like stupid complacent, but I, didn't, I wasn't bothered about my body armor anymore. I wasn't, I was just like, you know, the, what I'm saying is the rounds weren't affecting me. Right. I wasn't. I wasn't affected by incoming, and I. I remember those those initial couple of days where you just like no sleep and the excitement and the the the, the nerves and everything. But by the end of it, I was just like, yeah, yeah, seven six two coming in, or you know the dushka firing, and that and the dushka was always something that used to freak me out because I used to think <laughs> this is going to sound funny. But I remember like on the stupid, um, the stupid Rambo films yeah. <laughs> and you see these rounds like cutting people in half and I'm like, that's going to be me. <laughs> right, right. It was going to take off like all of me in one, one go. So, and it, yeah, duh. well, they, they do a, an awful lot of damage, but it's not quite like the Rambo film. Right, right. And um, yeah, so I don't, it's, I would never talk about it as if it was nothing, but, and most people would say this, you have, it's like the best and worst time of your life. Right. And as a medic, you know, I'd, I remember when I was leaving um, that patrol base and, you know, my OC was like, he said, I don't want you to go. And we, we had to rip out because our Royal Marines were rip, ripping in. So as crazy as it sounds, and this is, this is the problem that we have with the Brits, is we stick to our, our sort of rule months, our tours and stuff. And I, I, don't, I don't think we stay for long enough because I think what happens is the continuity of troops on the ground because we change after, say, six months. So new guys would have come into that location. And although they're sort of fresh, they don't really have that feel of the, of the country, let alone what's going on. Do you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's easy to, when you know, officers do their, their sort of handovers, it's easy to hand over. But in Afghanistan, in particular Helmand, it changes daily. You know, because they've been fighting for a long, long time. Right, right, and and I think that was an issue that all all um, Western forces had in Afghanistan. Yeah, and I'm actually reading a book now about a uh, army Army Special Forces uh, Green Beret team who went into an area and they they built up pretty good rapport with the locals and. Oh, was this one tribe at a time? Um, no, no. Right, because that's a that's a very similar, but it's that's a brilliant um, piece. I actually I read the. Um, there was like a, a paper done before the book and it's, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's exactly potentially what should have happened because you can't, you know, we can throw, you can throw bombs at people all day. You can do that all day. And, but the, the problem with places like Afghanistan is they've suffered that for so many years. You know, the only person to really half succeed there was Genghis Khan. Right. 
and obviously we can't start cutting around acting like Genghis Khan. Right, but right, right. You see, but you need, we need to get the. Sometimes we need to change our tactics, and we get, we do. You know, we do have success. Of course, we do. But I often feel that we just we don't seem to learn. Yeah, and it's it's kind of weird because what 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 makes it strange is that you can look at history and you can look yeah. at different wars and different engagements and see where the mistakes were made, and yeah, then sure. you would assume not make those same mistakes but it's just like it happens again and yeah. it's, it's it's very strange because you know the the same way how you said earlier like you know someone who's pushing papers on a desk is making decisions for people on the ground even though those yeah. decisions could affect the people on the ground in a really yeah. bad way and in the book i'm reading it's called hammerhead six that was the call sign of this, oh, this wow. okay. team. and 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 one story that he was the uh, the commander of this unit was talking about was they they driven over an IED and so the vehicle was was shot and you know they set up a security perimeter but they were in a really indefensible position so what they did was they called in for to have an Apache gunship destroy the vehicle so they can leave and yeah. someone back at the uh, the main base at the time uh, was Bagram. Uh, had decided that they should wait there for a few hours for some type of uh, helicopter or something to airlift the vehicle out. And anyone who's on the ground knows that that's a terrible idea, especially when you're vulnerable, you know? So what he had to do is he basically defied orders. You know, they blew the truck up themselves and they got out of there, but that saved their lives, you know? And, And had they listened to these guys who were, you know, a couple hundred miles away in a air-conditioned room you know it would have been yeah. more casualties for them you know so yeah and then the, and then you know they would have been statistics and, and and maybe the the maybe the book that was being written was about would have been about his bad command you know there's so there's such a fine line and, and that's the thing is and you I mean you guys would have that but I've I've seen that especially we used to our JTACs that were attached to us down there were all special forces you know whether we had a an SB guy and a, and a guy from Hereford. And I've never seen guys, you know, we had at one point, and it's documented in another book, not the one I wrote, by the way, but it's documented in another book. And I remember this happening. It was funny. It was kind of half funny. But the brigade commander's call sign came on from obviously, again, a different location to question the amount of um, bombs being dropped at this point. And, the, and bearing in mind, we were in a very hostile, very bad area. And, Surrounded by an awful lot of Taliban, um, and the, and the JTAC who was SP at the time, he he went on and said, "You know, I'm the, I'm the man on the ground, and I, I decide what I drop." And it was like, "Wow!" And a lot of the guys, and I and I can say that about this guy because he he died unfortunately a year later in a raid that they were doing. So people don't realize that they they see that a lot of SF guys, you know, if they're in their SF teams, that that's the story that gets told. But he was. He was out with us, you know, and I don't know whether it was sort of training for him, but he saved an awful lot of our guys, you know, for the, and they were confident to patrol. They were confident to go and fight and face the Taliban, knowing that he was the JTAC calling in for fast air, calling in, you know, it was, it's, he was quite an amazing guy. But again, it was refreshing to see that at the end of the day, he's the man on the ground and he takes that decision. And I, I'm, I'm grateful to have people like that in the military. Right, and um, I actually, 
I just finished reading a book about the um, the Six Day War with yeah. you know a few Middle Eastern countries and the uh, the Israelis. Yeah. And and I've had some former Israeli special ops guys on the show before, and one of the things that I've read about their military that kind of makes them unique is that they don't have much of that. Like the guys on the ground call the shots, and I think yeah. that's part of what makes them effective. You know. Yeah, and, th- and th- that's it. It's, ours is we're we're still sort of here's here's one for you. Like the Russians did not succeed in Afghanistan, and what did they do? They poured a stupid amount of armor into Afghanistan, and they right. did not succeed. And what did we do? You know, we poured armor into, and it's like, well, we need to kind of sometimes get off of our own history because I think we we have this this thing about oh we well, we did this. In fact, this is an interesting. I did a talk about the Battle of Waterloo, and they were using tourniquets in the Battle of Waterloo. And then all of a sudden, when I joined up, there was no, no one, no one touched a tourniquet. You know, literally, if you touched a tourniquet, you were the devil. You know, no one wanted to see anyone with a tourniquet. And then, what was the main thing that was saving lives? That still saves lives. It's tourniquets. You know, so people were basically, you know, all the the studies that were done in in the Falklands, in Vietnam, and, you know, brought back that people were dying because they were bleeding out, you know, from right. needless injuries, you know, needless sort of bleeding. And it, and that's how far we were using tourniquets in the Battle of Waterloo. So that kind of, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I've, um, I've had this discussion about uh, tourniquets on the show before where we spoke about, and, and it was with uh, combat medics uh, yeah. from the States and... What they were saying was there's a lot of injuries that happen um, like stateside, like, you know, car crashes or whatever, where uh, people died from bleeding out where it could have been prevented had they known anything about bleeding control, you know? Yeah. And it's quite, bleeding control's not tough. The thing that's tough is making sure that, you know, once you've controlled the bleed that you keep someone in a steady state. But people survive. People's bodies are really clever. You know, a body will know, if you can turn off the tap, the body generally can sort itself out. You know, sometimes, especially in, in combat medicine, the initial part, the less is more, you know, but if you can get, if you can turn off the tap, get someone in the correct position, the body can do an awful lot for itself. Right. So- but, and I think that's happening. I think that's going over to you, especially your, because some of your civilian paramedics are outstanding, especially with the, you know, you, you do have gun crime and, and those sorts of wounds can't, can't be that different from what they potentially see on the battlefield. Right. And what what's happening now in the States is, you know, after 15 years of war, a lot of the medics are coming out of the military and going either into, um, you know, like EMTs or yeah, or just starting their own companies and, and running courses. And it's improving the quality of medicine for civilians as well. I, I don't know if yeah. something similar is happening in the UK or not. Yes, yes, it is for sure. Like even with thing, the treatment of burns and things like that. And, and I always think if, because I get asked this question a lot, you know, and, and it, it pisses me off actually when people say, you know, do you, think, do you think it's worth it? And I think, well, it has to be worth it for our fallen, for one. I would never ever, I, I, would, I could go to the corner shop for our fallen and, and that's worth it. You know, it's one of those things. That's just a sort of a non-brainer. And, and then military medicine has come on leaps and bounds. And if, if, that, if that sort of transpires over to the civilian sector, then again, of course, 10 years of war potentially could be worth what, what it is worth, you know, in years to come. 
So it's, it's one of those things. And, and military medicine has come on leaps and bounds. And I suppose I'm, I feel quite proud to be, have, have been part of that. Right. And and from what I've gathered from having discussions with um, some of the, the medics over here in the States is what really made a huge difference in Afghanistan and Iraq or in, in other battlefields is is having the um having everybody in the platoon trained up for yeah. bleeding control and things like that and yeah, definitely. and and I think the the term he used was like uh get, you know giving that training to the lowest common denominator yeah and yeah cuz and, and that's another thing is we we've come a long way by training training our soldiers our our people to treat themselves cuz you can do that too you know friends of mine that were were trapped in the um Kajaki mine incident with our soldiers you know they were they were applying their own tourniquets because you couldn't reach them and that's another because I, I think you as your your lowest sort of med course is the CLS which is the combat lifesaver I believe yeah and that yeah that's exactly what it is it's a combat lifesaver you know and whether you're saving your own life or the the life of the person next to you right and there is a um an organization, I, I believe the name of it is the um, the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. Yeah, I, yeah I, I subscribe to that. Yeah, so they I recently shared an article written by, by someone from over there where they were talking about how the U.S. Army is now starting to uh, shift some of their training in, in a way of uh, training the medics to, to be able to treat the casualty for maybe days at a time. Uh, assuming that they don't have air superiority where they can just send a helicopter in and, and medevac somebody out. So yeah. to me, what that means is they're kind of preparing to fight against a more conventional enemy if the situation arises, you know? Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting... Um, because um, it's, I suppose it's more prolonged field care. And again, that's... You know, we, we look at TCCC, which kind of came out of... Um, these the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and that does have their their parts where it is prolonged field care and I understand that and let's if if it's ever going to be a conventional again I I guarantee you this we'll probably use the tactics that we've learned which would which would win the sort of wars we're fighting now we'll probably try and it'll be interesting what if we sort of did it on the flip side so the stuff we should do you know what I mean right, as if right. we'll go, yeah we won't go back to conventional like we should. <laughs> right, and it will take but, um, a while, and then it will catch up. Yeah, on. and then we'll be running around like doing. But if it's if it's going to be that, I imagine it's going to be somewhere cold. I don't I don't think we're going to be in the heat. But who knows? And I suppose if it's, it's never a bad thing to have medics that can treat people for prolonged periods, because even if you're in a sort of mountainous area where you can't get people in and out, or and if you, the last thing, and this was uh, back to the place that I ended up in, this was a, a, a massive call for medics on the ground is you don't want to be the person calling the bird in too early and then you've, you've got a bird shot out of the sky. Do you know what I mean? That was right. another big thing that I used to be very aware of is that is this casualty as bad as I think to get them out here? Because if I can keep hold of them for, say, a four-hour window and you know it's not going to be detrimental to them or – their, their situation then that's what you need to do you know I, we had a few incidences where and this is no sort of disrespect to the guys on the ground but if if the guys are getting hurt 
then them, their bodies always want to get them out of there as soon as possible. And that's where medics had to be you know, fairly strong and, and adamant about their role in the, the fighting company to say, no, I'll, I can keep him. I can keep him for four hours, you know, because he's not, he's not in dire need of that, that bird. And, and that's, yeah, that's not, no bad thing to teach medics to do that. Right. So, long as not, so long as no one starts playing God, because we're never, I, you know, sometimes we can get to a stage where we think we know it all and we don't. You, you always need to be learning. Right, right. And I think, um, you know, that kind of idea can be applied to everything in life, but especially for a job like a combat medic, you know. Yeah, so, so long as yeah, people keep. It's always a, it's always a sort of weighing things up, and the only the only way that I've found that I've improved, and I'm never I've, clearly I'm not the finished article. I've got far more to learn, but I learned with experience. And those those little tours in Kosovo where I thought, oh, this is crap. You know, I'm stood at the gate like every you know when you have to go through those crap jobs, right. like the private soldier does. Well, you know, I used to use. No one enjoys those jobs, but those jobs lead on to you having discipline, you having the discipline to wait, then, you know, respecting orders, but, but have questioning things if you need to without being a douchebag, you know. So you kind of, yeah, all those things gear up to, I think, when you need to make those important decisions, you need to have the correct thing to make those decisions and have the confidence to make those decisions because it's not easy. It's not easy when you have... Like I say, you know, if there's a, a life in your hands and you have to make calls. Right, absolutely. And and especially, you know, with the, the kind of the chaos of the battlefield. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and so Chantel, is there where can people go if they want to pick up your book? Well, it's not in the, it's not in the shops of the States yet, which is funny. And if they can put up with some some UK lingo, um, they can get it iTunes on Amazon, um, all the no- all the sort of normal places online. Yeah. Okay, so it's not it's not available in the stores in the states, but no, they can still get it online. No, I mean it's it's going in to see if if Barnes and Noble are going to take it, but I don't know that yet. Okay, okay. So we'll see. Okay, and do you have like uh, any any place where if someone wants to reach out to you and kind of keep up with what you're doing, where they can do that, like any social media? Yeah, sure. I run a, I run a Facebook page actually, and it's it's. I try and keep it non peace, non political. I know I don't. I'm not into that kind of. If something's going on in the world, I want to have an opinion on it. It's all about. It's like a safe a safe page. It's called Battle Worn: The Memoir of a Combat Medic in Afghanistan, and it's somewhere that military, regardless of where you know where you served and and their, the families of our fallen can go and and it's a place that I choose to have. You know, it's just kind of remember our fallen, but not not in a dreary way. I like to I like to do it in a positive way, and let's celebrate our men and women that have fought for our countries and and be proud. I don't I I hate that we've kind of in the, the UK. It's it's not that bad, but it's getting to a stage where after Blair was sort of pulled up about you know the war in Iraq and and that being illegal and all this sort of stuff, people are kind of veterans. Being a veteran's not the the best thing in the world, but I, I, my aim is to, to never accept that. Right, right. You know, I think I think people need to. I like the way that they do it in America, and I like the way that veterans are treated. I know it's not perfect for you guys, but it's far better for you than it is over here. And I, I really, I love that. I was recently in Baltimore, and I loved seeing people flying the American flag. 
you know, it kind of, I've worked a lot with Americans anyway, so I have that affiliation, especially in more recently in Baghdad. And, you know, we have got, we have got a, de- a definitive kind of friendship, our countries, you know, regardless right. of what the politicians say, the people on the ground, the people that I've served with and supported, we have a different bond than what the people in office have. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because we know, we, yeah, and, and even people, like I, if I meet Americans, you know, so people are so welcoming in, uh, on either side, and I, I really appreciate that, and I like it. It's a nice, it's a nice feeling that there's people in the world that think similarly to me, right, and absolutely. have that pride. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's awesome, and you know, in the states, you know, especially with the British, we have like a unique history, and and essentially we speak English, you know, and and we got a yeah. lot of our customs from the British, so yeah. Uh, there's a connection there that that I don't think exists with a lot of other countries. You know? Oh, cause, and there is history, and it's and that's funny actually because I used to when I was on the the fob when I was working for the it was in Jalalabad actually, and on July the fourth, I'd always get like people obviously taking the piss at the usual banter. I'd say, well, I'll go and put a red coat on and run round camp, and we'll have like <laughs> you know. But it was always it's always good banter, and it is because of the old American English stuff, and it's just, it's cool. And I always, um, I used to enjoy um, swapping rations because our crap rations for the Americans, oh, yeah. the MREs. Even though MRE rations, they're fantastic, but they're, they're really cumbersome. You know, if, if you're gonna, if you're trying to sort of save space in your kit, you don't want an MRE because it's like it's like a shopping bag. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I did appreciate the M and M's. No, it's cool. All right, cool. I, I, so you know, I appreciate you coming on and taking out the time. I, I think. Uh, people are going to enjoy this. Um, I hope so. Yeah, I haven't had any uh, British military on yet, so. Oh God, there's a bit of pressure on me then. Being <laughs> yeah, no, no pressure. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think people are going to enjoy it, and I think people, my audience, likes to hear from, you know, allied military uh, veterans. You know. Yeah. Are you? Are we still recording? We're off. Yeah, yeah, we're on. We're on. Yeah. Oh, what, we're off or on? No, we're on, we're on. All right, cool. <laughs> I thought you'd finished. Yeah, no, that's, um, it's cool. It's, it's good to, I'm really glad that I found it. So it's a really good um, way of hearing different accounts. And uh, funnily enough, you'll probably find once you've done 100, everyone's got kind of a similar line. And it's usually, yeah, it's a, usually a similar kind of opinion. And not necessarily on, the, on different things, like everyone's going to have a different opinion on the, the female thing. But generally, a war fighting, we right, all right. generally feel the same, you know. It's and who knows where we'll all be next. It's um, I think even if you leave the military, you're still, especially in the UK, we're all on the reserve list, and who knows what's going to happen. Right, right. So long as we remain on the same side, I, I feel I'm quite happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so cool. So um. You know, like like I said, th- I want to thank you for coming on, and uh, hopefully oh, thank I you. can have you back on. Yeah, hope- hopefully. Thank you for listening to my waffle. No, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> All right, have a good one. Thank you. I still haven't read Battle Worn, uh, but it will definitely be the next book that I'm going to read. And Chantel has had a very interesting life through her career in the British military and then her career as a contractor uh, post-military. So... Uh, you know, it's always interesting to hear from allied nations, uh, combat veterans, 
because obviously there's a you know there's a similarity with from what I've seen so far there's similarity with uh, veterans and warriors from you know all over the globe I mean e- even throughout history but I think it's always interesting to kind of get a fresh perspective and on uh, some of these topics and things like that so uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed the conversation with Chantel and uh, now I will play my conversation with Aaron Epstein from the Global Surgical Medical Support Group. Hey guys, how's it going? Uh, for this episode, I'm on with the president uh, of the Global Surgical Medical Support Group, uh, Aaron Epstein. Uh, Mr. Epstein, how's it going? Good, good. How are you? I'm good. Um, so actually, I, the way I kind of found out about you guys was on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, on, on social media now, these days, there are you know, like with the situation specifically in the Middle East, uh, you know, like with ISIS and stuff like that, they're, they're very active on social media. And on the on the opposite side, I'm starting to see a little more activity on social media from like Kurdish or Iraqi uh, military units and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I saw you guys and you guys are a very unique organization that does mm-hmm. some a very important work. Uh, can you talk a little more, a little bit more about the organization itself? Like, what, what is yeah. your, your mission and stuff like that? Sure. So, our mission is to uh, train up the civilian and military side of the Kurdish forces. Um, so, obviously, you have the Peshmerga to work with, and then also just the civilian sector. And initially, this kind of came about because when you had ISIS take over <clears throat> a territory into Iraq. Uh, that, you know, that displaced hundreds of thousands of people. And, you know, going forward, we're actually anticipating probably about another million uh, refugees fleeing out of Mosul <clears throat> once that operation takes place. Oh, so wow. what happened, yeah, so what happened was the existing uh, medical infrastructure in, you know, the main Kurdish cities, you know, were only really designed to handle, you know, maybe a million, million and a half at most. And even then, you know, it's it, it is the Middle East, so the quality of medical care is, you know, frankly quite low compared to, you know, what we're used to in the West, uh, you know, uh, you know, or even in Europe. <clears throat> so, with these large waves of refugees, the population, you know, in and around these cities ballooned by millions. So the so the infrastructure of the medical system essentially collapsed on itself, and you have you know the doctors just leaving. Uh, so, so there's a couple, there's a couple, you know, factors in that. So we had the population overload. You also had the fact that the conflict encroaching on, you know, Kurdish territory caused the, uh, the higher end doctors and surgeons that were already there to just flee to Europe because, you know, they have the ability to leave being, you know, higher in the society there and they could just as easily find a life in Europe. So, so essentially you had the medical system collapsing and a lack of, you know, skilled workers there. And the few that remain that we've talked to have, have said that they're just, you know, overwhelmed and they can't handle it. So uh, that's where kind of where we step in. And what we do is we bring essentially the full spectrum of medical support. So everything from frontline military medics all the way up to the, you know, the most advanced cardiothoracic surgeons in the world. And we'll go over there, we'll train, <clears throat> we'll train up their folks on uh, various skill sets. And then hopefully, you know, they pick up the skills 
and can, uh, can take care of their own population. And at the same time, we'll help out if there's a, you know, an overload of cases. So, for example, um, <clears throat> there was a backlog in one of the refugee camps, you know, for months. And we had one of our surgeons who, you know, ironically enough, she was a former army surgeon who then became, uh, you know, a Catholic sister and then volunteered with our organization. So, you know, she was over there clearing out the backlog of surgical cases and at the same time training some of their surgical uh, students and just their full, you know, full on surgeons over there. And I mean, at the end of the day, it, it's kind of a, uh, an interesting or a unique way to approach things because by training up a population on the skill sets that we have, you know, our, our real goal is essentially to make ourselves obsolete. Like we want these people to be able to take care of themselves. It's not, it's not something where we're there, we're going to give them a handout. They'll be fine for a couple of weeks that runs out and then they're going to need us again. That's not, that never, that never works. And, you know, everyone's heard of the phrase, you know, you give a man a fish, he eats for a day, you teach him how to fish, he eats the rest of his life. So, Right. I mean, we're there to teach them these skill sets so that they don't need us at the end of the day. Um, and so that's what we do. We're doing that on the civilian side and on the, uh, the Peshmerga military side because, you know, when you look at uh, global support for the Peshmerga, or, you know, really, if you look at the global support for any military, any form of military assistance, generally that comes in the form of here's weapons, here's training with those weapons. It's usually support in an offensive nature. I mean, that's, you know, our own special forces guys, and we got a lot of them in our group, you know, they're there to train these guys how to fight and they do it very well. But the thing is, there isn't really a global force that trains people how to medically take care of themselves. So that's again, where we're trying to fill this unique, you know, niche. So, um, that's, that's really the main goal of our organization. Uh, So is that, is that unique to the Middle East, or do you guys try and work uh, on a kind of a global scale? So right now we're, uh, you know, in the areas that are being most acutely affected by ISIS, just because, uh, for for one, that's because that's where most of our security networks, you know, a lot of the guys on our security side, uh, me personally, our previous careers, you know, gave us networks into a lot of these into the, you know, into the ministries, into the security apparatus, uh, into various, you know, military groups, various agencies. Um, and so this just happened to, you know, kind of be one place where the global, you know, you look at like, this is literally the worst humanitarian disaster, the worst man-made humanitarian disaster in a generation with these, with ISIS kind of marauding all over Syria and Iraq. Um, and so that this seems to be the most acute need for our kind of support currently in the world. So that's why we're focusing our efforts there. That being said, I mean, we would be just as happy to work in any conflict zone. It's just we prefer to, you know, we want to go where we're needed the most. It doesn't make sense for us to go somewhere where there are other aid groups that do have a capability to operate there. For You know, for example, uh, you look at South America, every I think every A group, every major A group, you know, floods into South America. The, you know, the, the, you know, the medical mission trip to Guatemala is, is, you know, that's literally every med school in the country probably has something that does that. So, so really we're just going and focusing where we're needed the most and where no other group can operate. Yeah. You know, it's a very interesting concept 
um, like you said, there are aid groups and medical groups that do go to these like conflict zones or you know like very poor countries where they don't have these resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting. A lot of the 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 world lives at or below the poverty line. I think it's the the numbers are like close to eighty percent. Mm-hmm. Um, so that leaves a lot of areas, and then you know anywhere that there is high levels of poverty, there's high levels of of violence and crime, mm-hmm. and and it's in different forms. Like in the Middle East, it's in the form of what we what we call terrorism, or you know, kind of it involves like a an ideology that's rooted, you know, in in a religion or something like that. And then if you mm-hmm. go, let's say somewhere in South America, it may it may revolve around the drug trade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and, but then in all these places, so many people are affected by, you know, such high levels of violence and poverty mm-hmm. and things like that. So, um, so what, so before you were doing this, um, mm-hmm. well, so what, what kind of got you into this? Uh, you have like an yeah, interesting sure. background, so can you talk about <clears throat> that? Yeah. So my background, uh, let's see, I, I actually went to college for an undergrad, undergraduate degree in Texas. Uh, at Rice University, so any Rice fans out there, uh, I don't think they exist, so I'm <laughs> just kidding. Uh, yeah. Um, after I did that, um, I went to work for an international defense corporation uh, focusing uh, on the Middle East, and I did that for a while. Um, and then after doing that for a while, I went to Georgetown's uh, Graduate uh, School of Foreign Service and got a graduate degree in intelligence and the security studies and kind of continued on in the Middle East area, focusing on security issues. Um, and then from there, you know, you know, if you look at, okay, if you look at, you know, the security world and the intelligence world, everything is pretty much compartmentalized. So one thing that kind of led to a bit of you know, dissatisfaction in, in the work I would do is that you never really know what the end objective is. You never really know what the end result of your work is. And I kind of found that a bit unsatisfying. At the, and at the same time, you know, this is about like when the Arab Spring was totally full, full blown. You know, you'd have, you'd have a bombing and someone would get their legs blown off and you put a tourniquet on and, you know, right then and there you saved a life. And so it seemed, you know, it was instant gratification that wow, I, you know, you see the result of what you did right then and there. So right. kind of after, you know, after you see that happen enough, I kind of wanted to, you know, check out this medicine field. So I came back uh, to Virginia and uh, volunteered with the uh, Fairfax County Fire Department. Uh, started as an EMT, then up to the medic level. And, you know, the, you know, I was really getting that adrenaline and that, you know, that helping people satisfaction, you know, I really, really like that. And every time you pick up a patient, you take them to the hospital, uh, you know, I'd always ask the do- the doctor that I was handing it off to, you know, could you explain more what happened? What could we have done better? You know, what were the treatments? Can you explain this, you know, explain so-and-so. And at some point the guy was just like, dude, just apply to med school and figure it out. So I did. So now I'm at Georgetown Med School and, you know, school is school. And at the end of the day, it's kind of dull. So I figured I reached back to all my old buddies uh, in the security world and I said, Hey, let's combine this. You know, I've got a medical network now. I've got, you know, a lot of connections in the security world, uh, various agencies. Let's, you know, let's put these together and do something good because I'm not going to wait 
you know, 10 more years till I'm a full blown surgeon to do stuff like let's do stuff now because, you know, there is an acute need now for some group that can combine these. So that's, that's essentially where this group came out of. It was really just combining, uh, my network in the new, my new network in the medical field and my old network in the security world. And every, you know, the second you hear about it, it's like, this is a great idea. Let's do it. So, you know, it takes some, it takes some gutsy guys, but you know, that that's just what it was. We just, we just got rolling with it. We've started, you know, combining the doctors with our security group. And from then on, it just, it just worked smoothly. So. Yeah, it's real good stuff. I mean, you, when you, you hear about like some of the other like aid groups mm-hmm. and, um, and specifically in the Middle East, I know not at times, and I'm not sure whose fault it would be, but mm-hmm. at times like the the aid isn't reaching the right people or yeah, yeah. the aid isn't very extensive, you know, like just right. like some water or something. But what you guys yeah. are doing is, like you said, you know, teach a man how to fish and he'll, he'll feed himself for a lifetime. And I think that's important. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's what immediately uh, made me interested in, in talking with you. Um, so you guys also hire like, surgeons and stuff like that and as well as like ex-military medics yeah so we so yeah so uh you know actually we could talk about for a second it's like what we I'll, I'll get back to the who we uh, bring on board but um real quick it's like when we do see other aid groups usually what we see happen is they'll come they'll drop a container of supplies they'll hang their banners all over the place. They'll take a bunch of photos for their donors back home and then they leave and that's it. And, you know, we've seen in a bunch of refugee camps now where, uh, there was, you know, some aid group came, they built a medical clinic and then they left. So there's literally in the middle of a refugee camp that has maybe a hundred thousand refugees, an empty medical clinic that no one can do anything with because, you know, they never, they like that aid group couldn't staff it and they didn't, you know, like how, how, you know, how pointless and kind of mean was that to the people in the refugee camp that like, oh, hey, here's a here's a big international aid group that's going to set you up with medical care. And all they really got out of it was a new empty building. So, I mean, that's again where we try and come in. We're like, OK, well, thanks for building that medical clinic. I guess, you know, we'll we'll staff it. We'll work it. We'll get these people to be able to take care of themselves. So. So that's, you know, we like what we try and do is we try and offer what I like to call like qualitative support instead of quantitative support. So like, you know, these massive international aid groups can drop entire containers of, you know, water bottles. Uh, So that's your that's your quantitative help. But at the end of the day, okay, so they're not thirsty for another three days. Great. What did you really do for these people? So, So again, I mean, so back to us trying to offer a qualitative difference to these people's lives um on your uh, on your point about who we bring on board uh yeah we bring on uh the entire medical spectrum so we're bringing field medics uh you know on the military side that's like 68 whiskeys 18 deltas naval corpsmen um any any you know any of the highly trained medical medics um we'll also bring on you know uh special operations forces uh veterans that have experience in the region um and then we'll bring in on the civilian side we can we'll bring in you know very they got to be like very experienced paramedics or flight medics um nurses doctors surgeons um you know you know anyone who can really have something to contribute 
that's that's who we look for. Right, right. And um, so for you guys, if if people want to like you know join up your organization, can they mm-hmm. like where can they go to do that? Like for anyone who might be interested listening. <clears throat> yeah. So anyone who's interested in you know, applying to organization, you can go onto our website at www.gsmsg.org. And um, on there, you'll see a tab at the top that says uh, join our teams. We have three different tabs. One's for medical professionals. One is for security guys. And then one is for, is kind of the catch-all. We call it the global globally based assistance position where it's like, even if you can't go, people still have things to offer. So for example, our our biggest need beyond people is medical gear and equipment. So if, you know, people go to their local, you know, like an EMS supply that they have access to, you know, and they can donate equipment, that's great. Actually, now that you brought this up, you brought this up uh, as far as how people can help, um, like one massive way we have found that people can help is by going to their nearest medical clinic and asking if they can donate whatever medical supplies are expiring or expired because we recently found out that you know hospitals everywhere and pretty much every medical clinic in this country are legally obligated to literally throw out their medical equipment and almost on an annual basis and it's it's kind of ridiculous because i mean i don't know if you like you've seen like these iv kits or like gauze even i mean even gauze and bandages they don't really expire but i mean so but you know that it's the law so and whoever pushed that law through i'm sure is making plenty of money off it but like they just literally throw it away so we've approached a few hospitals so far that we've said hey listen we have this you know this great global medical assistance program growing you guys are going to throw away all these medical supplies anyway why don't you just give it to us and we can put it to good use and so far, they've all said yes. So, you know, if someone wants to help out, you know, stateside, one thing they can do is just go to the nearest medical clinic, medical center, hospital, whatever, find out who's in charge of supplies. Uh, literally, one of our folks just, you know, called the hospital operator, said, can you connect me to, uh, you know, supply management? And they walked right in their office and, you know, had this whole thing hammered out in 10 minutes. So, you know, that's one massive way that people can really help if if uh, they want to help out on the state side. But uh, for the experienced veterans out there and for the experienced medical professionals, uh, we're definitely looking for you. So, you know, send in an application online and we'll definitely review it. Okay, so if people want to, like, where can they go? Can they go to the website if they're um, interested in, in sending out some medical supplies to you guys? Yeah, so <clears throat> on our website, uh, at the bottom is the address. And it's a... Uh, the, the place where we collected collect all the supplies is in Washington, D.C. Um, the address is the, uh, the P.O. box. It's at the bottom of every page on our website. Um, so it's uh, GSMSG, and it's the P.O. box 32174 in Washington, D.C. And then the last zip is uh, 20007-2174. Uh, so they can send supplies there. That's kind of of our central collecting point uh, from all over the country. And then from there, we're able to forward it on to Iraq. So, um, so yeah, it's on there and they can always email us, um, the, you know, the headquarters folks at, uh, 
contact at gsmsg.org. And they can get more information there on how to donate too. We can send out, uh, you know, a flyer and, uh, to them. Uh, we can send out documents on exactly which medical supplies are most urgently needed. Although honestly, everything is needed. They have, they have pretty much nothing over there. So, you know, you know, people just send whatever they can really and everything helps. So. Right. And what I usually do is I upload the episode links onto my website and I'll have what we call like the podcast notes. This is basically a description okay. of the episode and cool. um, I'll have all the links for all of that on there. So if anyone, and I encourage you guys to, to uh, donate if you're in a position to donate uh, to mm -hmm. this company, because these guys are doing really good work. Okay. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And uh, you know, I'd say too, that, uh, you know, we're not like our group isn't even necessarily in it for the money. So that's one thing where it's like, if people can donate financially, great. We, you know, every, every aid group always wants that, but we are also interested in medical supplies too. So if you can donate that as well, uh, that's just equally as appreciated. So. And how long have you guys been up and running? Um, <clears throat> for almost two years now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, you guys are doing great stuff, and, um, you know, I, I know the people who are receiving these, this information and the care that you guys are providing really appreciate it, and, you know, for anyone listening, you know, people with this kind of mission uh, should be highly valued in our society, you know, because you guys are, like, really going out of your way to help people who need it, you know, so I, I mm -hmm. think that's a great thing. Um and so for people who want to kind of keep up with you guys, are there any social media handles that they can go to as well? Yeah. So, you know, the funny thing is for the, for the most part, most of the people in our organization are, you know, either medical professionals or, or, you know, ground pounders for lack of a better term. So we don't actually have too many, you know, social media handlers, but we do have an Instagram page that you kind of mentioned towards the beginning where we'll occasionally post, uh, photos from our teams that are out there. Um, you know, if you've been following us on Instagram lately, our, our, you know, our emphasis has been more on the military side just because the Mazul operation is kind of spooling up. Um, but we do still have the civilian uh, trainers going. Um, so Instagram, you can find us on there. Uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter. Um, they're not as active on Twitter. Um, and yeah, our, you know, our main webpage, but, uh, yeah, I'd say if you want to keep tabs, you know, lately, just, you know, Instagram is probably good for now and we'll slowly transition to, you know, the other major social media outlets, you know, when we get more social media experts on board. Okay. That sounds good, man. Um, you know, I just want to thank you for taking out the time to come on the podcast. I'm sure you guys are pretty busy. Uh, you know, I really appreciate it. Hello? Hello? Oh, yeah, sorry. You cut out for a second. Oh, no, no. I, I just I want to thank you guys for... I would thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. Oh, no, I, I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. I had a great time talking with first Chantal Taylor and then Aaron Epstein, the president of Global Surgical Medical Support Group. Uh, they both are doing great work uh, in the world and um, helping 
fight uh, evil where it needs to be fought. And for anybody who's interested in donating supplies to the Global Surgical Medical Group support group, you can go to their website. And on their website, there's an option on there where you can send in medical supplies. And, uh, you know, everything that is donated is, is used and very helpful. And um, it's very appreciated for people who can contribute. Now, uh, Chantel Taylor was the first uh, British military veteran to be on the show. Um, you know, go, moving forward, we'll probably have uh, several uh, British military veterans, uh, you know, on the show and from different units and things like that. And um, it should be fun. So with that, I'm going to close out for this episode. You can check out my website at www.globalrecon.net. Uh, the podcast on there, you just it's globalrecon.net slash podcast. Um, right now in our store, uh, we have some PVC patches. They're going for 15 bucks a pop. Uh, it's very it's high quality stuff. Uh, we also have some vinyl decal stickers that can be placed on your laptop or wall or anywhere that you you think it's appropriate, as well as wristbands. So check it out. Um, on social media, the Facebook account is FB Recon. On Instagram, I now have three different accounts. So check them all out. The first account is IG Recon. The second one is Global Recon underscore Inc. And the third and most uh, newest account is Black Ops Matter. So check me out on Instagram. Um, also on Tumblr, just search Global Recon. Twitter, IG Recon. And on LinkedIn, just search Global Recon. Um, I encourage you all to subscribe, download, and share it with your friends and your family and, and help keep the podcast at the top of the charts of the government and national categories on iTunes. And, um, you know, we have some, some pretty interesting episodes lined up for you guys. So we'll see you in a few days with another episode. Peace.